Here we go. Good morning. Good morning. If you're visiting, my name is Peter, and uh, welcome out to everyone. We are in the second half of our study in the book of Judges, and this has been a wild ride. It's been wonderful. We're all the way to chapter 13 of Judges today, and we see finally a flicker of light in an otherwise really dark period of the period of the Judges. Flicker of light. Now, uh, before you get too excited about that or you cue that, uh, what is that, Pharrell Williams song, Happy, uh, just notice that I did say flicker, okay? Just a little flicker, but it is a beautiful family. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet to honor God's word. We're going to see this beautiful couple from the tribe of Dan. And again, chapter 13 of Judges, and I'll start with verse 1. Ready or not, here we go. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And there was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. And therefore be careful. And drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me. And his appearance was like the appearance of an angel of God. Very awesome. I didn't ask him where he was from, and he didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then, drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. God's word. Thank you. Y'all can be seated. Lord Jesus, please add a blessing to the reading of your word. And help us to truly come to know you. Amen. Amen. Now as we're going to see from chapter 13 that we're going to go deeper into here. Manoah and his wife are the parents of Samson. And Samson is the last of what are known as the cyclical judges in the book of Judges. The, The cycle of oppression and crying out for deliverance, and repentance, and deliverance, and backsliding, and therefore more sin, and more oppression, and more, you see the story. Now, we'll get to Samson next week, but there's so much glory we can glean from God's word, from chapter 13 here, and his parents. And I have uh, really condensed what I want to say, hopefully condensed, we'll see, to really one sentence that I think speaks to what we need to gather as far as wisdom and pertinent, vital information from chapter 13 here. You ready? Here goes that sentence. God sees you and guides you and wants you to know him. I'm going to ask you to help me preach that and preach it with some oomph. Repeat after me. God sees me. God guides me. God wants me to know him. Oh, I can tell this is going to go well this morning or this afternoon. Y'all are preaching good. So here we go. I'm going to take it one at a time. 
First of all, God sees you. And you need to know that God sees you within the context of how you live and the culture that you're in. God is not old-fashioned. He is the same yesterday and today and forever, and he sees you. And he saw the Israelites where they were when they couldn't see themselves. It says in verse 1, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord, in his sovereignty, he knows what's best for history and humanity. He gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. 40 years. You know, it's very conspicuous. It's interesting. It's strange that in this whole chapter, nowhere around here where you see, where you see what you saw in the several chapters before, what's missing is that part where they cry out to God and they say, God, help us. There's no praying to God. For the first time, the cycle of them actually crying out to God is gone. There's, there's a contentment. They'd forgotten about their oppression. They'd just gotten used to it, it would seem. They were just content to live in subjection to the Philistines. And this is not a godly thing. You see, They stopped seeing their oppression for what it was. They stopped grieving their sin and the consequences and what it was doing to their kids and the oppression on their culture. They just stopped seeing it. They got used to it. Like that direct TV commercial. They became settlers. But see, God didn't stop seeing. And God didn't settle into that new form of normal under Philistine oppression. And you need to know that God today, he sees you. And he sees everything that you see about you that no one else sees. But you need to know that he sees so much more than that. He sees what you've stopped seeing. He sees what you've grown accustomed to and you've failed to keep noticing. He sees the things that that are oppressing you that you don't see, that you're blinded to, that you've settled for. And if there's such a thing as godly discontent, then on the other end, there's also such a thing as ungodly contentment to just stop seeing the things that he sees. Now, as it relates to today, when I think about the ungodly contentment that it seems the Israelite nation had faced under Philistine oppression, I go to think about what the Black Lives Matter movement desires and seeks to overcome in our day. Go with me here. Since Ferguson and the seeming cycle of many other such events, what you see is at least a rise of a lot of good, righteous indignation against oppression and injustice. A lot of godly discontent for the status quo and the way things are. And that's good, I say, because no one should just get used to bad stuff. If you're made in the image of God, you should be born of dignity and grow in dignity. Because God made you. And yet there's voices out there that say stuff like, man, just get over it. Just be content. Just settle. It's so much better than it used to be. As if settling for a little oppression in favor of worse past oppression is a godly thing. But listen, that's not godly. God wants us to desire to grow in overturning oppression because he made us in his image and he wants us to grow in his image. But we have to be careful. Because one scary thing that the book of Judges shows us is that you can just as easily, if not more easily, be oppressed by your supposed deliverers. 
And this is why we have to be careful and we have to ask. If black lives matter, and they do, to whom do they matter most? And the answer is that black lives matter most to the one who made black lives. The one who generates life, and he's also the one who knows how to bring full, pure, whole deliverance and not partial deliverance that leads to more oppression. His word truly sets free when we are ill-equipped. And so we have to align ourselves with his vision, not just the vision on one side or the other and going against one another and not in the middle, but above. We have to align with his voice lest we be on one end, thinking we're bringing liberation, or on the other end, thinking we're keeping the peace when we're just perpetuating oppression. You see, he sees you. He sees way more than you see about yourself. He sees oppression. He sees specifically the oppression that this specific couple was facing too. He saw their culture and he saw something specifically that they had stopped seeing about themselves. It says, verse two, there was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now this is interesting, if not scandalous, that the angel of the Lord appears to the woman here, but... Only to the woman, we'll see the rest of the chapter. He only goes to her. And what else is curious and somewhat strange is that this woman is never named. We don't get her name in the rest of the chapter. It's Manoah's wife. It's Samson's mom. Listen to what Daniel Block's commentary says about this specific reality. He says, ironically, though she turns out to be The most important human character in the chapter, Manoah's wife, remains unnamed. Now, I think that there's a special message in that to all of us today, especially the younger generation here, the so-called millennials. You ready for this? Even if your name doesn't get out there like you plan on it, even if people don't know about you like you think they're going to know about you, even if no one ever likes your Instagrams, God sees you. God knows you. He knows so much more about you than you know about yourself. And this apparently unnamed woman has a name to God. God sees her, and he sees specifically her needs that she stopped seeing. He sees her barrenness and her infertility. And when I think about infertility and barrenness, it's just a different culture back then. But whenever you face it, when you're married and you're trying to have kids, you see it, the Bible in a whole different way. The Bible is replete with barrenness. The subject is, is full of, of barrenness and infertility. I, I think of the dark years of my, my wife and I's marriage where right around the, the failed adoption placement, where we were in so much pain, indescribable pain, and We felt so alone because the type of paradigm for our suffering no one else had and no one could relate to us, but so many people tried ever so insensitively to do so, right? Which made it so much worse. And it was so difficult. It was this emotional burden. But as much as it was hard for us, when you look at this couple, they were facing so much more than an emotional burden. They were facing condemnation. They were facing a spiritual burden and a physical burden that was way beyond what we would understand in our culture. First of all, spiritually, 
they were condemned. The thought of the day in Israelite culture that was that if you're infertile, it's God judging you. Now, it didn't come from anywhere in God's word. In fact, the God's word already clearly showed the opposite of what they had to know about God. But that's the type of pressure that they were facing. And the other thing is that this couple with no kid, they were facing a very real physical crisis. Because in the day, if you grow into old age, your only you know, Israelite 401k of sorts was to produce a physical progeny, a child to take care of you in your own age. What else could they hope for to, to, to be cared for when they were older? Nothing. And they had no kid, no progeny. And it would seem nonetheless that they just kind of settled in to their impending doom. They just stopped seeing their need, it would seem. Again, Daniel Block's commentary is helpful to me on this. He says, whether or not they had come to accept her infertility as a fact of life, their lives were unexpectedly interrupted by the visit of the divine messenger. It's interesting, it says, Uh, the angel, it says there was a woman, she was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said, behold, you're barren and have no children. I can imagine her thinking like, oh, it's Captain Obvious. (laughs) She just kind of had gotten used to it. What I want to say to you is that there are things that maybe you've accepted as just facts of life. In fact, what are they? What are the things about who you think you are or uh, your circumstances that maybe you've just kind of over the years just accepted as facts of life, but that God sees and doesn't want you to settle for. God is here right now and he's here to unexpectedly interrupt your life with his blessing. He doesn't accept the things you accept. He sees more than you see. He loves you more than you understand and more than you love yourself. God sees you. And number two, God guides you. He guides with a holy standard, but it starts with a miraculous provision. God saw not only this woman's need, but the high calling that he was going to lead her to and the miraculous provision that would launch her into that. It's, uh, let's see, read verse Three, again, the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said, Behold, you are barren, have not born children. You shall conceive and bear a son. That's, that's important. Verse five, for behold, uh, verse four, therefore be careful. Everyone say, be careful. be careful. Be careful and drink no wine or strong drink. Eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. It would seem that it's repeating the same thing. But if you look at the original language, it actually uses a different phrase in the Hebrew. So the first time it says, you shall conceive, future tense. But in verse five, when it says, when we have what's rendered, you shall conceive, it actually says, you have conceived, past tense. What this is saying is, is this is clearly a miraculous conception. It is a miraculous work of God to give her a child. And this is reminiscent of several other miraculous stories that we know of in the Bible. They would have known of the first one. They would have heard of the first provision of the promised child. Abraham and Sarah bore Isaac, miraculously conceived in their old age. And after the time of the judges, the the forerunner to the time of the kings coming out of the period of, of the judges was a a miraculous conception, Hannah 
being able to bear Samuel, the forerunner of the kings, and the forerunner of the king of kings. In the New Testament, Elizabeth, in her old age, bears a child, John the Baptist. And her cousin, Mary, bears the king of kings, Jesus himself. You see, what's common about all these five things that I just mentioned, they were miraculous conceptions. They would have gone to the fertility doctor like us and officially been infertile. And yet God provided a miraculous conception foretold by a visitation of an angel. Now, one thing that they don't have in common is that Manoah's wife seems to be the only one besides Mary of the list I just mentioned that responds to this message with what seems like faith, as opposed to incredulity or, or even mocking like Elizabeth and Sarah and Hannah. They didn't, kind of, they didn't believe it, and they almost kind of teased about it. And so the angel shows her that through this miraculous conception, he is guiding her and her family to something bigger through providing something way beyond what they had settled for. And this relationship that was beyond them required a higher standard of living, a higher connection, a greater connection and intimacy and obedience to God. And so the angel says, therefore, be careful. That's what he's saying to you and I today. God's word is saying, be careful. Drink no wine or strong drink. Eat nothing unclean. This is what's known as the Nazarite vow. It was laid out in Numbers chapter 6 in great detail. It was for a special time when there was a special need in the land of Israel. God would give a special vow and a special calling to someone who wanted to seek God's favor in a special way and attach themselves to the Levitical, the priesthood expectations, and even beyond that for a special provision from God. It was stringent because it was strategic. And that's what God was calling this family to. He was guiding this family to a higher calling than they were planning on, that they were, they were invested in at the time. And you know what? God, with you today, regardless of where you've come from, we come from diverse places, but we're gathered here today because God's word is saying to you that he is guiding you to a higher calling than you were prepared for. Can you say amen to that? Now, if you can say amen to that, then repeat after me. Higher calling, higher standard. If there's a higher calling, there's a higher standard. What strategic things has God already spoken to you about your life? Promises he's made to you, things he's called you to, special things that may not be like everyone else. In fact, they aren't. What special things has he called you that, that don't afford you the same rights or excuses as that other guy might seem to have? God has called you to a higher calling. Now, these Nazarite provisions, he tells her to do all these seemingly stringent things. God's not wanting to limit this woman. He's not wanting to hold her back from having a good time. He's preserving her for something special, something historical, and it would require a higher standard. And I need to look at why. why. Why did God choose her for this higher standard? And this is important for all of us to consider. Why do we get to be here right now? That's an important thing. Why did God choose her? Did God choose her just because she was already a little bit more righteous than everyone else? Finally, God found someone that he could work with? I don't think so. 
Now, this is important. I'm not saying this to, to smear this woman who has a lot of commendable things that we can learn from, but to point out how God chooses to lead all of us in faith. Because even though Samson's mom had a real commendable response in faith to the angelic message, it would be reading into scripture to conclude that God chose her in the first place because she was a little bit better than everyone else. I sometimes do that with scripture. That's not what it says. In fact, when it says here, uh, verse four, eat nothing unclean. You need to know that that's actually not a part of the original Nazarite uh, vow. That's actually just a basic part of what all Israelites were expected to do, to not eat unclean things. The whole Israelite nation had been given this law time and time again. There was already a prohibition against it, and yet the whole nation of Israel had totally forgotten it as they had rejected God. And this woman didn't see it. God saw it, and yet God was guiding her through a a special, powerful anointing into a higher calling that led her back through the basics. See, God didn't lower his standards. He increased his mercy so he could guide her back into the plan he had for her life, into a higher calling. And you know what? That's what he's still doing. He was saying to her, in essence, look, I know you've forgotten these things. I'm not bringing this up to you and expecting this view of just, just to shame you, but to preserve you, to secure you for our future together. And I'm expecting something of you. I'm increasing my mercy. How much is that like how God leads you and me? I know my life, when Jesus called me almost two decades ago, and drew me to himself out of my religious hypocrisy and all sorts of things. I was just a normal kid. He didn't lower his standard in regards to sexual perversion in my life. He was aware of the state of our culture, and he didn't lower his standard with me, but he did increase his mercy with me. He met me in a really dark place and began a very painful process to purify me, a process that's still happening, by the way as I grow to know Jesus. And like this story in chapter 13 of Judges, my story also began with a miraculous provision of a new birth, new power, amazing grace like we sing. I remember, I still have it. It's, it's not just a, a, a pretty good effort. It's amazing grace. And now the amazing grace launched me into a stringent set of disciplines. Well, at least got, I got one amen out of that. A higher calling, a bigger standard. But it did not start because I was better at adhering to the rules as anyone else. I was probably worse because I thought myself better. And God poured out his mercy on me because he has a higher calling for me. Have you ever heard that uh, phrase, uh, that passage, if you will, um, God helps those who help themselves? Um, It might be in the Bible, but it's definitely not in the Holy Bible, maybe in the Satanic Bible. But it's Jesus who says, God does not call the righteous to repentance, but sinners to repentance. God doesn't choose just to guide those who seem to guide themselves well, but those who know they need to trust him for guidance. And Manoah's wife is so commendable in, in all these things that, that she, she does to respond to God's gracious, merciful leading. But the real hero of the story is God's mercy here. Just like 
the hero of your story and my story. And this is important to point out because if we don't get this, we're not going to be able to meet the standard to go forward with him if we don't see this. When God comes to her, he says, look, you've forgotten most of these things. I see where you are. I see you're pretty much a mess like everyone else, but we're going somewhere. Just like he comes to you. And he says, look, I know you're unclean and that's not okay. Walk with me. I'll purify you. You don't know and you don't see how much I love you. And that even though you're impure, I'm the purifier. He comes to you and says, I know you're sleeping with your boyfriend, but I'm so much better than him. And you need to stop. We've got a future together. He says, look, I know you're looking at porn. And I know that pretty much everyone is. And I know that society tells you it's a healthy release for your sexuality. But that's a lie. Stop the uncleanness. Walk with me. We've got purity to pursue. He says, I know that you're fearful with your finances and you're withholding from me. You're being greedy. But look, we've got a future together. We have nations to bless. I'm going to show you my miraculous generosity in you and through you and from you. Watch me. He says, I know you're really bound by simple distractions and you're all over this rectangle lifestyle and that little rectangle, that little, that little device and your Facebook trolling and your candy crush and all your, your little things that you do. You spend hours on it. I see that, he says. But he says, look, You can't be like everyone else. We've got too much to do together. Ain't nobody got time for that if you're called to walk with me. He says, I see you where you are, but I'm guiding you to go somewhere else because even though I love you right where you are, I'm unwilling for you to stay there. I see it and I'm guiding you to a higher calling, a higher standard, and I'll give you a miraculous nudge to push you forward into it for my sake. You see, his mercy is what sought Manoah's wife out right where she was and guided, literally, miraculously propelled her to respond with an aggressive and confident faith. And it's a little bit more than we can say for her husband here. I'll go on on verse, verse 8 and forward. It says, Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent to her come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. Even though it was already clear, God graciously obliges. Verse 9, And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman and as she sat in the field. He came to her. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day, he has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke with this woman? Now pause there for a minute. Husbands in the room, it's a good idea not to refer to your wife as this woman. But nonetheless, the angel replies, yeah, I am. Verse 12, Manoah said, Now, when the words of yours come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what will be his mission? Verse 13, the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that the woman, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not have eaten anything that is unclean that comes from the vine. Neither let her drink of wine or strong drink or any unclean thing. All that I commanded to her, let her observe. God sees you. God guides you. And finally, God wants you to know him. Now, when he says in verse 12, uh, now, if, if what you say comes true, what, what should we do? 
he's not testing God like Gideon was in chapter 6. You know, kind of testing God, making God prove himself, it would seem. He's just really asking God for crystal clear clarity, even more clarity about what he's supposed to do to obey what God said. And there is a base of humility in this. But we can't confuse humility with timidity. Because underneath all of this, he was insecure about what God had already spoken and made extremely clear to him. Maybe he was a little upset at the mode of the message that he spoke through his wife and not directly to him. He needed rules, so he thought. How often do you and I become like codependent on rules instead of trusting in the person of God? We, you know, we, we want just a few answers, a few rules. I can handle that, but the discomfort of being way beyond my expectations in this person, how often does that happen with you? Tim Keller, who is an author and pastor, says in his commentary about these, this passage, he says, we think we need rules, but we need to know God. God does not and will not give us a guidebook for every twist and turn, every doubt and decision in our life. He gives us something much better. He gives us himself. Do you know Manoah is an interesting name? When I first heard Manoah, I thought he might be like a Hawaiian brother or something like that. But Manoah is actually a Hebrew word that means resting place. Resting place. I think it's somewhat ironic here that his name means resting place and he seems to be one of the most restless, insecure men in the Bible. Maybe that's why I got so much out of it. I relate to him so much. He doesn't want for God to speak through his wife, who, by the way, seems to probably be more worthy of his name, resting place. He wants direct instruction and more exhaustive rules when that's what God already gave him. What about you? Can you trust in knowing that God wants you to walk with him even more than he just wants you to do certain things in life? He wants you. Not your adherence as much. He wants you to walk with him. There's a standard to that, but it's a personal thing. Let me illustrate this with a parenting example. I'm going to just talk about my two beautiful redheaded daughters, my oldest and my youngest child, my seven-year-old and my one-year-old. My one-year-old, Bethlehem, she really needs rules right now. I mean, she doesn't know that sticking your finger in a light socket is not super fun and can kill you. She doesn't know that eating dirt is probably something that's uh, not good. And so what she needs right now is to conform to my commands. She needs rules. But the older she gets, let's just her older version of herself, my seven-year-old who looks just like her, Hadassah, she needs to start incorporating my heart, my values, our, our teaching into something that she knows us and knows how to apply our values more than she just needs rules. She needs the internal motives and principles. Amen. Don't mistake external rules for internal relationship when it comes to your relationship and your walk with God. Manoah wasn't being guided into a, a set of rules or even a superior lifestyle here. He was being guided to a person, a transcendent, a mysterious, an amazing, a glorious person. And when we think we just need to be informed, we need to be transformed 
in the knowledge of who God is. When we think we just need a few new rules for our life, God wants to give us a new heart to obey him, walk with him, enjoy him. What part of your life would you say that deep down you often would prefer a few rules or maybe uh, some ideas or answers to small questions even more than God himself. God's trying to give you himself. You just want a few answers. You settle for less. You see, Manoah, even though he wants less, he gets more. And this is what's beautiful. Verse 15 going forward, Manoah said to the angel, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord Yahweh. For Manoah did not know that this was an angel of the Lord Yahweh. Verse 17, and Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you want to know my name? Seeing that it is wonderful. So Manoah took the young goat and the grain offering and he offered it on the rock to the Lord, to, one of the, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah said to his wife, and Manoah and his wife were watching. Verse 20, and when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame to, of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on their faces to the ground, which is appropriate. I think, I hope you and I would do as well. This mysterious manifestation of God that they're coming to know the mystery of. Now there's a little message in this. This seems to be the, the only thing Manoah and his wife do together in concert. There's a little message to that in us. Who, who here has ever sought unity with your spouse or a loved one? Pretty much all of us. Now, it's important for you to know that even more than knowing yourself or having yourself known, and even more than knowing that other person, what we need fundamentally more than all and more than everything is to together, to mutually bow before the great one and find ourselves known in him, whole in him. That's how we can seek unity with one another. And let's zoom out for a minute. What is going on here? <laughs> An angel appears twice to the woman. Seems like she's messing with the man. They together are, are instructed and, and redirected with what they think is an honorable thing. And all of a sudden after the offering, boom, he disappears into the fire. Woo! What is happening? Is this an, a visitation from Jesus himself again? Is this an angel? Is this God? Is this... Here's my final answer. I don't know. It's a mystery, I think. Some have opinions about this, but I, I don't know. I think it's a mystery. I think that what I do know is that God was wanting to send a divine encounter to these people so that they would see and get a picture of this God who they had forgotten that they could come to know, who this God who they, that they had forgotten but that had not forgotten them. They were to be encountering a mystery. And we need to know that knowing God, if we know that he sees us and he guides us to know him, well, knowing him is an ever more glorious and ever more mysterious endeavor. The more you know him, the more you'll find out that the well is a lot deeper than you think. There's so much of him to know than you're accustomed to, that you're comfortable with. He's more glorious, more holy, 
more righteous, more wrathful, more loving, more gentle than you ever imagined. But as I draw to a close, there's one thing about this mystery that has been revealed. It points to something that's been revealed. When the manifestation of the divine messenger goes up after the sacrifice, that's like with Jesus. The rise of Jesus from the dead and his ascension into heaven followed the sacrifice on the altar of God, the final sacrifice. Judges, in fact, everything points to Jesus. All of this points to Jesus. In fact, remember verse 5, the angel says to Manoah's wife, your son shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And what we'll see out of Samson's life is that Samson would begin to save Israel from the Philistines, but he would, he would fail to fully save them. In fact, he would fail to fully be saved from himself. But Jesus, as we know from Hebrews, he is the beginner, the author, and the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. He saves completely and fully and from greater enemies than the Philistines. Jesus saves us from our very selves, from sin and from death. That's why Romans 6, 23 says that the gift of God is eternal life. The wages of sin, the payment of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, if you're here today, And you can't confidently say that Jesus is your Lord. If you haven't been delivered from your sin and into new life and guided to come to begin the process of knowing God, then you need to know this. God sees that. You can't hide from him. You can't hide from him in any room. He sees you, but he is guiding you to know him and to come to know him. Would you pray with me? Lord, help us all, help us all to see your hand and how you're guiding us, how you're drawing us to know a deeper manifestation of the mystery of who you are, revealed in your word, empowered by your spirit. Help us all. And Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to guide us with what our response should be. Even those of you who are praying right now, would you just ask the Holy Spirit, say, Holy Spirit, what am I supposed to do now? Am I supposed to confess that Jesus is Lord and give my life to Jesus maybe for the first time? Am I supposed to sign up and find someone here before I leave, before lunch, that will baptize me? What, ask the Holy Spirit, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to join a growth group or start one or, or join our established classes. What are you supposed to do? Just ask the Holy Spirit, what am I supposed to do right now? Holy Spirit, I trust you. Answer, Lord. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.